The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Women's Pre-Conference, Longings. Well, I want to tell you a story about my great-grandmother. She was born right after the Civil War, and she um, was a Victorian lady. And I have a portrait of her in her Victorian dress. It had a high collar. It had long sleeves. It was long. It had uh, puffy, big puffy sleeves. And uh, she was quite something. Well, her name was Alice. And my name, my middle name is Alice. So I was named, partially named, after her. And uh, she had, some of her furniture was just beautiful. And it has come down to me now. And um, if you ever come visit me, I will show you uh, her furniture. And um, she died when I was six months old. So I have a picture of my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother, Alice, and then myself as an infant. But I only got to know her through my mother and my grandmother. Alice was a Christian, and even in her elderly years, she was memorizing scripture. And I don't know for sure, but I like to think that she was praying for me for my salvation. I think it's very likely. Um, I don't know what she was thinking. Uh, I don't know what was in her heart when she dressed up in all of her amazing outfits. But I am confident that she would be appalled at the styles today. <laughs> Whereas she was covered from her neck to her toes, some of our ladies um, are practically naked, and we know that. And now it's summertime and it's even worse. Now, uh, last year I was privileged to co author a book with one of my pastors, his name is Kent Keller. And uh, we, and the book is on modesty. Well, he, we entitled it "A Gold Ring in a Pig's Snout." Now, we really liked our title, and um, but the publisher kept saying, "We don't like your title." And we would say, "Oh no, we love our title. It fits perfectly." There's a verse. In Proverbs 11, it says, As a gold ring in a pig's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion, meaning moral uh, perception. So it just fit perfectly there. So when we finally got down to the end process in the editing and all that, they just said, We can't live with this title. And we said, okay, well, you think of a title. So they did, and they called it Modesty More Than a Change of Clothes. But I still like my title that we had. 
Um, Now, what I want to do for this session is define biblical modesty and immodesty. I want to tell you what the Bible teaches, Old Testament and New Testament, about this issue. And I want to give you some practical tips on how not to look like a beautiful gold ring, all dressed up outwardly to go to a party, but in your heart, you look to God like an ugly pig. So let me begin with this definition. Modesty is an inner, it's in your heart, inner attitude of the heart motivated by a love for God that seeks his glory through purity and humility. It often reveals itself in your words, your actions, your expressions, and your clothes. Now, on the other hand, immodesty is an attitude of your heart that expresses itself with inappropriate words, actions, expressions, and or clothing that is flirtatious, manipulative, revealing, or suggestive of sensuality or pride. Now, when I got saved, I was 33 years old. And um, I was skinny back then, and I wore tight jeans. That was the style back then. Now it's the style now today. It came back. Um, But Anna, our daughter, was 13 years old. Well, she wore skinny, tight jeans, too. Well, it took a while. It took months, maybe a year, year and a half, that I came under conviction about this issue. And so when that happened, um, I was also under conviction that my daughter, our daughter, should dress more modestly. Well, Anna was not a Christian then, and she did not take kindly to this uh, thing of going shopping. We would go shopping. We, she would try on jeans. She would cry. I would end up crying. We wouldn't buy anything, and we would go home. So finally, my husband said, look, I'll go with you, and she can try on jeans, and I will make the final decision. Well, I thought that was a really good idea. So one night we were eating supper and her little brother David was there and he's listening to all this and so I explained I said tomorrow morning your daddy's off and we're just going to go shopping and you can try on jeans and then he'll make the final decision well she burst into tears and everybody was shocked I I thought I was telling her good news (laughs) it's not good news for her She burst into tears. Her life was ruined. She got up and she ran out of the kitchen. Now, David, who was eight years old by then, he's listening to all this and he saw this and he says, bye-bye, baggy britches. Well, we just about died laughing. And... (laughs) 
she has never forgiven him for that. I mean, she's in her late 40s, and we, when this comes up, she gets mad at David. So anyway, her heart was not right about this issue. Well, let's look a minute about what, what does the Bible teach about modesty. And, and I will tell you, it is a challenge to approach this subject and not be a legalist. I mean, it would just be really easy for me to just say, do this and don't do that and have, you know, this rule and that rule and uh, that kind of thing. But let's look at what God says about this issue. The first principle here is that God created, and this is so timely, men and women to be different. Uh, Genesis 2 in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then down to verse 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into, don't you love that, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. He shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Adam was ecstatic when, when God created Eve. And uh, there finally was somebody there that was his partner, somebody he could relate to. And they, had, they were naked. They didn't care. They were not self-conscious. They had never, ever sinned. And even though I'm pretty confident that Adam desired her physically, sexually, he only had pure thoughts towards her and only she only had pure thoughts towards him. Well, then sin came along and everything became tainted by sin. Not only for Adam and Eve, but for all of their children, and that includes us. Genesis 3 and verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So they were ashamed. They wanted to hide themselves before God and they tried to cover their sin. Well, when sin entered the picture, so did sexual lust, vanity, sensuality, immorality, and all kinds of associated sins. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10, this, these, when, when I got saved... And I read the Bible for the first time, and I found these verses. I was 
thrilled. And let me tell you why. Verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, these are single people having sex, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I was in some of that group that would describe me pre-salvation. But then Paul wrote, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And then point D under these principles, because God is holy, he had to punish people for their sin. And there's, it's either one way or the other. Basically, there's two ways. People can take their own punishment for their sin and will be punished in hell for all of eternity for their sins because God's wrath will never be satisfied. This is how holy he is and how horrific our sin is. Or our Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took the punishment on himself that we deserve. Since God made him... Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So at the moment of salvation, God cleanses us from our past, present, and future sins. He indwells us. He gives us a new heart that longs for him, that desires him, that wants to obey him that wants to glorify him, to please him. He convicts us of our sin and grants us repentance and faith. This is, I call it a miracle. It is a supernatural work of God. It is a 100% work of God. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. In Titus 3, verse 4 through 7, Paul wrote, But when the kindness of God our Savior, talking about Jesus, God our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He drew us to him. He saved us. He convicted us of our sin. He gave us faith to believe. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, this is the cleansing of your sin, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. An amazing, astounding 
promise. So because God is holy, he has to punish sin. We either take our own punishment and we'll be punished for eternity. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. Or Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. And then point E. Because men and women are different, they react to temptation differently. For example, a man can be instantly tempted when he sees a woman dressed immodestly or acting in a flirty, sensual manner. Now, in the book, uh, when, when I was writing about this, and so many women, especially younger women, I think, are very naive about this. They do not realize the effect that they have on men. And I've heard them say, well, that's their problem. Well, it, it is their problem, and they need to repent. But even godly men who are trying very hard to not, even old men <laughs> who are trying very hard not to think wrongly or read more into this, uh, what she looks like, uh, they struggle Well, a godly woman would not want to offend them that way or make it harder on them than it is. But anyway, I remembered uh, something that happened to me when I was a kid. I was in school in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, near the D.C. line. So it must have been second or third grade because we moved back to Atlanta when I was in third grade. And there was this older boy in the school, and he was a bully. And he started picking on me. And he would hide, like, behind the door. And I would come into the school, and he would jump out and scare me. He would throw my books on the floor. He would, I mean, he, I don't remember his name, but I vividly remember him and how scared I was of him. And I finally told my parents, and my dad went over, and I don't know what he said to this kid, but that stopped. But um, anyway, I talk about the emotional, instantaneous reaction that you have when a bully is bothering you. I said, can you think of someone who was cruel to you? Perhaps another kid at school made fun of you in front of others, and everyone laughed. Perhaps he tried, he pushed you or tried to trip you up. Maybe he grabbed your books, ran down the hall with them, and threw them into the trash can. As a result, you dreaded going to school because that bully of a kid would not leave you alone. You tried everything you could think of to stop him yelling back in anger, telling the teacher, telling your parents, crying, begging him to stop. One day, you even tried praying for him. On the days when the bully did not make fun of you, you were nonetheless well aware that he was lurking near you, ready to burst forth with seemingly endless cruelty at any moment. You always had to be on guard and try very hard to avoid him. 
In a similar way, this is how boys and men usually are when they see an immodestly dressed woman. Even if they try to be godly, they are well aware of the sexual temptation. Think about it. You can be perfectly happy at school, talking and laughing with your friends, and then you see the bully coming straight at you. Well, you're going to panic and have despair immediately in your heart. You have an instantaneous emotional reaction. Uh, Then you have a physical reaction. Your heart rate increases, your cheeks turn red, perhaps tears well up in your eyes. Well, typically, when boys and men, older boys and men, see an immodestly dressed woman, they have an instantaneous physical reaction. It's sexual temptation. It can happen to them out of the blue. We have an expression in the South, it's like somebody hit them upside the head with a baseball bat that they did not see coming. So it's just as difficult, if not more difficult, for men to avoid sexual temptation than it would be for a little girl to stop reacting to the bully. So I tell girls this, you may not have understood that, but now you do. So if you continue to entice men in this way, then you're going to be a harlot in your heart. Before that, you were naive, but you need to understand this. And it's not just when you come to church. It's when you go to Walmart. It's when you go to the movies. It's when you go anywhere out in public. Well, because a godly woman would want to show love to God and love to others, she would desire two things. And when I'm counseling women, we have a biblical counseling ministry at our church, and I'm one of the volunteers, Um, I always, at some point, teach them uh, Matthew 22, 35 through 40. And I call this the big picture. Now, of course, the bigger picture is your salvation and the gospel and that we cover first. But if they really know the Lord, then we go on to, all right, you need, no matter what the problem is in their life, you need, we need to approach this in two ways. How can you show love to God more in this? And then how can you show love to others in this? We, need, we all need to think in those terms. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, 35, this is one of them, one of the Pharisees. A lawyer asked Jesus a question, testing him. So, and they were trying to trick him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, they're talking about the Old Testament law. They um, thought in terms, the Pharisees thought in terms of greater commands and lesser commands. And they would pick and choose what they thought were greater commands. Those were the ones they said you have to keep. The lesser commands were optional. So they were trying to trick him. But they said, what do you think 
is the greatest commandment in the law. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now we know from other scripture that how you do that is simply by obeying him. The, the, um, Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But then the Lord added a second great commandment. He said, the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, your neighbor is everybody else in the world. And then he said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So think in terms of, when you're thinking in terms of loving others, think about 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Every time you're patient, with your husband or your child or Elise or somebody there, you are showing love to them, whether they deserve it or not. Love is kind. When you say something kind, when you do an act of kindness, love doesn't seek its own way. It's not selfish. So it's very practical. And if it's the second greatest command, we should learn, what does that look like in my life? And it should be your joy to do that for the Lord. So thinking in terms of obeying God, and that's not your burden. It's like, oh, I have to obey God. No, this is your joy. I love what John wrote in 1 John 5 and verse 3. He said... um, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I had a young woman years ago in in my Bible study, and she kept coming to me and saying, it's so hard to be a Christian. Can you explain that to me? And every time she asked me, I, I said, I can't explain that to you. The way of the transgressor is hard. When I was an unbeliever, my life was hard. And of course, I still have hard things in my life. But it is a joy to be able to serve the Lord and to be able to do things that you know please him. Um, So his commandments are not burdensome. And then a godly woman would never want to unnecessarily tempt the boys and men around her to think wrongly of when they see her, how she dresses and how she acts. Uh, We had a a couple, young adult couple in our church, but they were young and uh, they they got engaged to each other. And uh, she would just hang all over him and hug him tightly, just front on. I I thought, this kid's going to break out in a sweat. I mean, he's just going to die here. But she, I don't think, thought anything about it. But I guarantee you, everybody else did, and so did that uh, young man. 
1 Corinthians 13 says, love doesn't act unbecomingly. It's, it's not rude. It, it, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So loving God and loving others. Lord, what does your word say about this issue and how can I obey that? And how can I then show love to others? We um, went out to eat one time at a restaurant and with some other friends. There was four of us at the table. It was an Olive Garden restaurant near Atlanta. And uh, I noticed, everybody noticed, everybody in the room noticed this uh, teenage girl that came in. And the way she was dressed... My thought was, she is almost naked. I couldn't, I mean, it was so obvious and so bad. And uh, then her mother came in, and I thought, she is naked. So she was worse than her daughter. But I thought, how sad for that young woman, that teenage girl, to have that kind of example for a mother. The mother obviously was not modest. She didn't care. And it seemed, I don't know what she was thinking. I don't know her motive, but it seemed outwardly like she was flaunting her sexuality. She was very sensual. Okay, now let's look in Isaiah chapter 6. This is an Old Testament example of the ugliness of the heart's motive of immodesty. Now, this is a warning from God of judgment to come to the Jews if they did not turn from their idolatry. So listen to the warning, because this part of the warning was directed directly to the women, directly to their vanity and their sensuality. So in Isaiah chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Now, picture what these women must have looked like. Chapter 3, verse 16. It says, um, Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion, these are the Jewish women, the daughters of Zion are proud, They were proud of what they looked like. And walked with heads held high and seductive eyes. So I bet they had on a lot of eye makeup and they were just very sensual in their looks. And they go along with mincing steps. Now they're just prissing along. And tinkle the bangles on their feet. So they must have had like ankle bracelets on with bells on them so that when they walked, it reminds me of a cow, you know, that has a a thing around his neck and has a bell. You hear the cow coming. Well, you could hear these women coming and you would notice. Therefore, and here's the judgment. This is how ugly idolatry is to God. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the the judgment day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, 
crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloak, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. And you thought you had a lot to do to get ready today. <laughs> now it will come about, because of the, God's judgment, it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Pu- the smell of putrefaction is rotting flesh. You know how awful that is. Instead of a belt, a rope, because they're going to be taken off as slaves. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth, because they'll be in mourning. And branding instead of beauty. So this warning um, is, is it's ugly. This picture is very ugly. Uh, talk about people that longed to be noticed. Uh, I have a, there's a young, fairly young woman in our church family. She used to be a model and she's really stunningly beautiful. And uh, I've been working with her on her heart's vanity. And uh, she told me the other day, she said, when I go out somewhere, I only check myself in the mirror one time, and uh, I'm proud of her. (laughs) So the Lord is really working in her heart, and she's trying. One of immodesty's best friends in the Old Testament is shame. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, nakedness is described as shameful. But the person didn't have to be completely naked to have that description. The Hebrew word for nakedness can also be translated shame or indecency, depending on the context. Now, we know in Genesis that God covered Adam and Eve's sin with clothing. But an animal had to die. The death had to take place in order for that to happen. In the Old Testament, the priests wore robes, and um, they had to be careful. They were told, be careful how you walk up the steps, because the robes could gape open and then display the skin underneath, and it was shameful. In uh, Psalm 109, in verse 29... This is a psalm of David. Verse 29, it says, Let my accusers be clothed with, he's praying, talking to the Lord, let my accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. Now, Another, point I, another of immodesty's best friends in the Old Testament is sensuality. Now, when you think of sensuality, think of your senses, your, your, your smell, your touch. Uh, it's the sense of satisfying or appealing 
to sexual desires. Sensuality is expressed in what you say by flirting, by hinting sexual themes, by gazing into a man's eyes just with that lingering look. Uh, The Bible talks about that in Proverbs. In Ezekiel 33... And as I said earlier, it's also expressed in, in touch, such as front-on hugging of guys. Ezekiel 33 says... Verse 31 and 32, I'm going to start in verse 30, and this is Ezekiel, this is God talking to Ezekiel, the prophet, and he said, but as for you, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. My mother would say, it's going in one ear, what I'm telling you, and it's coming out the other. You're you're perceiving it, but you're not acting on what I'm telling you. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song. He gives an illustration here. By one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. Ezekiel, their hearts are hard. God is saying, they are not listening to you. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. And then the Bible tells us in the New Testament that sensuality is one of the ways that we love the world. Uh, James warns in James 4, he said, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. You cannot have it both ways. James 4, 1 through 4 says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. How many times do you, we find ourselves comparing what we look like to other women and what they look like? So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. You, you, you're not in both camps. You, you can't 
have it both ways. Sensuality is one of the examples of the way that we love the world. And then point K, we are to be a living and holy sacrifice to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is just how we ought to be. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's what you're telling yourself. It's what you're thinking. I remember as a brand new believer at age 33 when I read the Bible for the first time, especially when I got to the New Testament, just about every other verse I would do, oh, no, I'm doing that wrong, or I'm thinking wrong. And I would stop and I would think about it, and I would pray about it. And then I am the one who had to change, not God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is always good and acceptable and perfect. So uh, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And then point L, Peter warns us in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 through 13, to abstain from fleshly lust. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, 2, 11 through 13, I'm sorry. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers... To abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then point M. Peter also exhorts women to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And some of you may have heard me say, that does not mean you whisper when you talk. Elise and I can't hear you if you, if you do that. So uh, speak up. Have a personality. But in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says, your adornment, it's okay to have beauty. It's okay to wear makeup. Most of us really need it. It's okay to enjoy the freedom that we have in the Lord. Um, but he says here, your adornment must not be merely external. Braiding your hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But Here's your true beauty. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. Now, the heart is just who you are on the inside. It's what you long for. It's what you desire. It's what your motives are. It's what you're thinking. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, and this is eternal beauty, imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit 
which is precious in the sight of God. And I remember the first time I read that, and I thought, well, I don't know what that is, but I know I don't have it. (laughs) And I remember praying and asking God to make me a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. And I said, because I want to be precious to you. I want you to see me that way. And it's not going to happen unless you do this work in my heart. All right, gentle and quiet. I did this huge study on this. And the bottom line is two things. A woman with a gentle and quiet spirit accepts God's dealings with her as good. She doesn't contend with him. She doesn't shake her fist at him when things don't go her way. I uh, Last November, we learned that our daughter had cancer. And it was very serious cancer. And uh, it was breast cancer, but it was aggressive. And um, I just remember the bewilderment. And it was just like out of the blue. Where did this come from? And I, the, I got scared. And I, every time I would just feel almost overwhelmed with fear, I would turn it around into a request to God. And I thanked him. I didn't feel happy, okay? But I thanked him for reminding me how much I needed him. And I thanked him for the trial and what he was doing in all of our lives and including Anna's life. And then my request was that they would be able to cure her with all the medical treatment. And and that remains to be seen. But um, at the end of that request, I would always have to add, and you just have to go against how you feel to say this to God, but whatever would glorify you the most. That's what I want. And I was praying that prayer many times every day. And I still am. But the, the, the grief and the fear, the Lord has just given me great grace. And finally, one day, it just lifted but he, gave, he enabled me. He will never give you more than you can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And he helped me to continue to function. I didn't feel like cleaning up. I didn't feel like cooking. I didn't feel like counseling. I didn't feel like teaching my classes. I didn't feel like anything but crying, just sitting around crying and feeling sorry for myself. And one day, Anna said, I got teary around Anna, and she says, Mom, you're not going to cry. I said, I'll cry if I want to. (laughs) So anyway, I try not to cry around her. But God's power is real, and he's good, and he comforts you. And his peace has settled on me. Now, my fear and grief can come back. I know it can but you cling. Anna is clinging to her anchor. And we all need to be clinging to our anchors. Um, so 
This gentle and quiet spirit, two things, accepting God's dealings with you as good could be a small little pop test or a huge, massive, overwhelming, seemingly overwhelming test. And the second thing is a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit is not given to anger or fear. So that describes a woman who trusts God and clings to him even when things are out of, seemingly out of control and very rough. Um, and then point in, Paul tells us we are to dress and behave modestly and discreetly. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Our adornment, he says, of tr- woman with true beauty, her adornment is shown by her good works. Oops. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And he describes what that is, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Think of the Roman beehive hairdos back in his day, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. It should be our joy to show love to God and love to others this way. We, I have a friend, Patty Thorne, who this perfectly describes her. She is behind the scenes. She is a servant. She, and it, this is not something she resents. And she does not call attention to herself. But you can't, if you're around her, you can't help but notice this. I um, dedicated the, my Titus 2 book to her because it just so perfectly describes how she is. But it is her joy to do this for the Lord. And it should be our joy, too. And then let me talk a minute about legalism. Now, legalist, the, the, the chapter in the modesty book on legalism is worth, I think, is worth the price of the book. The heart of that material is Pastor Keller's material. And uh, he just explained it in such a clear way to understand But legalists judge people by their own rules and external standards. For example, you can only wear skirts, long skirts. Now, the older I get, the longer my skirt gets. Is that the same thing for you, Elise? Yeah, well, we're trying to cover something up. Uh, Blouses with sleeves that button up to your neck. In other words, you have to look like the characters on Little House on the Prairie. Um, Legalists think how they dress is part of their salvation. So they're doing one of two, how they dress, what things they do, the rules they keep. Um, They're either trying to earn their salvation by their supposed good works, or they pride themselves on pleasing God through their man-made-up rules. The legalists are like the Pharisees, and our Lord Jesus had a very stern warning for them in Matthew 23. In fact, uh, he 
pronounced a curse on them. When he says woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, that is a curse. Matthew 23, 13 through 15, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, and you do not enter enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. They wanted everybody else to be just like them. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And then verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. This is the most important thing. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. So it's very, uh, one time uh, my husband and I visited a church. We were out of town a long time ago. We visited a church. They had a sign on the front door. If you are a woman and you are wearing pants, you are not welcome in this church. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Uh, I don't think anybody much was welcome in that little church so and styles have changed things are more casual now uh enjoy as i said the freedom that you have in the lord all right i am going to give you some practical tips on how not to look like a beautiful gold ring all dressed up to go to the party but in your heart you look to god like you're an ugly pig Number one, enjoy the freedom you have in the Lord to wear makeup and clothing that you like. Styles change. We, I'm glad we don't have to dress like the Victorians dressed. It must have been super hot to dress in those outfits. And they didn't have air conditioning back then. Somebody who's drab in their outward appearance. And, and I had a young woman counselee like that. She thought she was sinning if she wore any color. All of her, she wore pants. So legalism is never consistent. They just make these things up. But she either had to wear white or just maybe beige or something. It couldn't have call any attention to herself. Well, she just looked dog ugly. And uh, she called attention to herself because of how odd she was dressing and people noticed it. Um, so somebody like that is probably also judging other people who are not like that, a Pharisee in their heart. Have as your deepest heart's desire to please God. It should bring you joy. Ask yourself, who am I trying to impress? What am I thinking when I choose the clothes to wear today? When I look in the mirror, is, you know, since I've gotten older, if I don't have on my glasses or contacts, everything is fuzzy. 
and I look really good. When I, when I look in the mirror, I think, oh, I look really nice. And then I put on my contacts, and I'm like, oh, no, this is terrible. Everything comes into focus. Uh, what am I thinking when I look in the mirror? Is it God, or is it how you can be noticed? How many compliments you can get? And then some practical tips to go by. Are my clothes too tight? Is my neckline too low? Bend over and look. Even if the top of your breasts are showing, it's too low. Most men are taller than we are, and they have a bird's eye view of what they're seeing. Um, Is my shirt or blouse too high at the waist? Raise your hands over your head and bend over and see if skin is showing. Am I exposing parts of my body that are sensually suggestive? Do my undergarments show through? And that's very popular these days. Am I constantly having to adjust my clothing because I feel a little guilty about what I'm wearing? What does the slogan on my clothing say? We had a church picnic years ago, and this teenage gal came, and she had on tight, kind of short shorts. She was really cute. I mean, she had a good figure, and she was young, and she was cute. But those shorts on the back, in big letters, it said, Texas. Well, we started, everybody called her Tex. And... uh, I noticed it. I know good and well the men noticed it. Um, Am I dressing like a girl or one of the guys? You know, we need to love and be grateful for the sex, the gender that God has made us. So let me just conclude by saying, remember my great-grandmother Alice, the Victorian lady? I don't know what was in her heart. Only God does. I do know she was covered from head to toe. What about you? Thankfully, we don't have to dress like she did. We have washing machines. We have dryers. We have clothes that you can just hang up and you don't even iron. Young girls don't even know what that means. What do you mean when you say iron something? Uh, But what is in your heart What are you thinking? What are you longing for? What are you desiring? When God looks at you, does he see a woman who is precious in his sight? Or does he see a woman who is a harlot in her heart? So let's pray. Father, this is so convicting because we're all vain to one degree or another. And we're all dissatisfied with our body shape and what we look like and how old we are and how many wrinkles now that we have. And Father, I just pray that you will help us to turn from this, to not be self-focused, but to love others, to love you, to set our mind on the things above not on the things on this earth. Lord, thank you that we can have fun with makeup and clothing and we can 
um, go shopping with our girlfriends. But I just pray that overriding all of this is because we're doing this because we love you and we love others, that we will dress modestly and discreetly and not be vain, and that you will help us to not judge others who are not exactly like us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.